It's good to see all of you this morning, and we're going to have a, a wonderful time this morning uh, praising God and giving thanks to Him for how He worked in bringing uh, Jim and Phyllis Myers and myself out of Ukraine uh, last week. A week ago, yesterday, we arrived here on a Turkish air flight from Istanbul, and somebody asked me if I kissed the ground when I landed, and I said, no, I'm not at an intercontinental airport, no. <laughs> All right, a couple of announcements. Uh, Wayne put out some uh, on the free book table, his book on role of women in ministry, which is outstanding. Uh, he's not here yet. I don't know if he's revised it much over the years, but, but I've given away so many copies of that. It's, it's a quite excellent study. Also, um, another person we need to be in prayer for and whose ministry we need to be in prayer for is Ron Minton. Some of you remember he gave us a course about 10 years ago on textual criticism that is available on the uh, Dean Bible Ministries website. And that's a, a full course on textual criticism. We don't have room for it as an elective at Schaefer Seminary, so anybody should and could take it. If you're a student, that's a good thing to work your way through. But Ron had a ministry in Ukraine. Jim often taught for him, and he would also come over and do some stuff with Word of God Bible College. And he had a number of uh, places around Ukraine where he had institutes set up, uh, uh, Ray Mondragon would go over and uh, teach two weeks for Jim and two weeks for Ron. And so Ron's in country here and has been for several months, but he has a lot of people over there. And um, what was that? the pastor in Dnipro that came in and sat in my classes last week? Yeah, uh, Andre. Andre. Uh, have you heard anything from him? Just that he got back home. He did get back home. Okay, Andre was a uh, free grace dispensational pastor we just were put in touch with uh, just in the last couple of, minutes, couple of months in Dnipro, which is sort of south and east of, of Kiev. So we need to pray, uh, be in prayer uh, for, those, uh, for those people. This morning what we are going to do is uh, sort of a little bit of a redo of what we did here for our worship service on Sunday morning. We're going to begin with a call to worship. We always have a call to worship prior to the beginning of each service. And our call to worship is taken from two verses here that are focusing on the commands to give thanks to God. Psalm 50 verse 14 is a command to offer to God thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. That would relate to the vows made under the uh, Mosaic Law. But the command is reiterated to give thanks to God, Hebrews 13:15. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Now, that's a command. It's a, in the Greek. It's it's in the first person, so it's let us. But it, that is a hortatory command that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 
And as we all know, that whenever you read believe on the name of Jesus, that we praise the name of God, we're not talking about just the label. We're talking the name represents the character, who God is and what he has has done for us. And that the biblical concept of thanksgiving is more than just saying, thank you, God. When we look at the descriptive praise thanksgiving psalms, they describe what God has done and call the people to give thanks to God. And this is something that has been lost in most churches today. They have a rather, and we're all guilty of this, rather shallow uh, simplified view of giving thanks to God, and when you have services like around Thanksgiving and things like that to give thanks to God, they'll say, I give thanks to this and to that. We don't need to go into as lengthy an explanation as we are this morning, but that there should be more than just, I thank God because I got a job this last year, and uh, something like that, because God intervenes providentially in in many, many different ways. So as we come together to publicly praise God and to give thanks for our deliverance uh, last week and the way so many different things came together, let's make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. And so we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer so you have opportunity uh, uh, for confession. And then we will, I will pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we are here today to focus upon you, to reflect upon who you are, your attributes, and how those attributes came into play as you brought us out of Ukraine last week. And Father, we pray for those who were left behind, many of whom have left Ukraine Many, many others who are still there or their families have been uh, torn apart as the wives and children were able to leave and the husbands, being of fighting age, have remained behind. And um, uh, some have taken up arms and are fighting with, with the Ukrainian army and others are engaged in ministry. And, Father, we know of so many families and individuals that are now in places where they are surrounded by uh, Russian troops and uh, not in the military sense that they're under attack, but it's just that their areas have now been taken over by the Russians and we pray for them and their safety. We pray for Ron Minton and as he's working with his people that are in Ukraine and we pray for those ministries and hundreds of other conservative Bible-believing ministries that have been quite fruitful over the last 25 years in, uh, in uh, Ukraine. And we pray that, that th as horrible as this war is, that there will be much fruit that comes forth as they witness to the truth of your word and give people the gospel. And Father, we pray for us today that our attention, our focus will be upon you and we will be reminded of the way in which you work in all of our lives behind the scenes in your providential care and your, the fact that our lives are valuable to you 
and they are significant to you, and you watch over our lives as a loving Father. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Jim and I are now going to begin by reading through Psalm 116. Okay, you got it there. All right. Oh, yes. We are going to sing first, and then we will read the scripture. I don't have, I don't have, I'm going off memory. My memory's not in good anymore. We're seeing number, seeing number uh, 415, He giveth more grace. Please stand.
and looking over some of the declarative praise psalms in the scripture, uh, I came upon Psalm 116, which is fits a lot of the context that we had in our uh, Ukrainian adventure. So we are going to read through Psalm 116, which is sort of a background for what we will be, I will be talking about and Jim will be talking about this morning. So, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So this morning we are going to praise the Lord. We are going to describe what he did, the way he worked behind the scenes, the way he set things up going back at least 10 or 12 years to pull together or create and establish the threads and the connections that would come together to affect our uh, rescue and deliverance uh, last, last week. As we look at this psalm and reflect upon it, looking at the basic structure of these psalms and of this psalm in particular, the focus in these uh, thanksgiving psalms, these descriptive praise psalms, is to show the care, the concern, and the providential guidance of God in the protection of the lives of his saints. The theme of this psalm is expressed in Psalm 116.15. This is a verse that I'm sure many of you have used in funerals and memorial services, as I have. And it is a phrase, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The Hebrew word for precious is the word yakar, which means something that is prized, something that is highly valued, uh, something that is costly, or something that is 
highly esteemed. And in this context, what this is telling us is that God is not indifferent to the death of his saints, but that their death is highly valued to him. That means that God is not is concerned about the fact that we live the life to the extent that he has determined for us, that God has determined the time, manner, and place of our death in such a way that uh, he is going to protect us and take care of us until that time comes when he has determined that he is going to call us home. And so in this psalm, the writer reminds us of the dire circumstances in which he found himself where death seemed a reality. And in response to that, he felt internally distressed and sorrowful. And sometimes we as Christians think, oh, if I feel anxious... If I feel sorrowful, if I feel somehow distressed, then that's a sin. The sin is doing the wrong thing with that emotion. Those words that are used for sorrow and distress and anguish were used of Christ in the uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane as he looked to the cross the next day. But instead of acting upon that, he prays. And that is what the psalmist models, and that is what we did. I don't know that I've had a time in my life, maybe one or two, when I prayed as much as I prayed during the entire time leading up to going to Ukraine and being there leading up to the fact that suddenly I woke up at 4.30 in the morning, had to go to the bathroom, as I got back in bed, I had the window open because the temperature that Wednesday had gotten up to 51, so it was rather warm inside. And as I was getting into bed, I didn't have my hearing aids on, and I'm rustling the covers. I heard a funny noise. And I thought, Nick, that's not a backfire. That's not a gunshot. No, it couldn't be. And I happened to reach over and pick up my phone. It was just blowing up with text messages from Americans. You're under attack. The Russians are attacking. And from that point on, the prayers took on a different different urgency. In Psalm 116.3, the psalmist says, The pains of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol, the grave, death, laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then, see, when we ha- sit, see these circumstances that cause us to, to you, we, we feel that anxiety, we feel uh, distressed, then we go to the Lord in prayer. That's our response to this external adversity. I called upon the name of the Lord, and as I said earlier, that, brings to, that phrase brings to bear all that God is, who he is, his character. And he said, oh, Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul and many of us know that that phrase often my soul is a reference to my life deliver my life and then he focuses on the character of God he says gracious is the Lord and righteous yes our God is merciful three attributes of God are the focal point his grace that God delivers his people in spite of their sins and failures it's undeserved it's unmerited and righteousness, because God is true and faithful to his promises. 
And so God will always do the right thing. And in mercy, he understands the adversity we face in life and is there to rescue us. And we have a high priest who has been tested in every area as we are yet without sin so he can have an understanding and a compassion for us. The focus is that we are to think, not to emote, not to react in terms of those emotions that are are welling up inside of us. And when we focus upon the Word, then the truth of 7 and 8 comes to bear. Return to your rest, O my soul. The faith rest drill isn't passivity. It is relaxation on the basis of the promise of God and then doing what God says to do in the midst of that adversity. Uh, It is not just sitting back and folding our hands and saying, well, somehow God's just going to miraculously uh, beam me up or beam me to some new location, but that he is... Uh, he has given me a brain. He has given me uh, various uh, promises or, or principles to apply, and I need to be active in that, that arena. It is a focus of the mind, as uh, I reflected a lot, as there have been many times in the last three weeks when I have uh, wept, Uh, thinking about what my dear friends in Ukraine are going through, what Ukraine as a whole is going through. And I thought through, because some people get the idea that somehow if we are weeping, that we're, we're really not trusting God. Jeremiah wept as he saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Jesus overlooking Jerusalem wept because they had rejected the prophets. And then we also know that when Jesus was uh, at the graveside of Lazarus, Jesus wept. A lot of people miss this. They say Jesus wept because Lazarus had died. No, he didn't. Three times in the prior context, he tells his disciples he's died for a purpose We're going to go there, and he's hinted that he's going to raise him from the dead. He knows exactly what he's going to do, and that Lazarus is going to be coming out of the grave. And at that particular moment, the verse before he wept, remember context? I can do anything through any verse taken out of context. What's the context? He looked upon the sorrow and the grief of the crowds, and he wept because he saw the depth of sorrow and grief in their lives, because God did not create us to die. Death is abnormal, and death is a reminder to each of us, and it's a wake-up call that something is abnormal in life, and that's because of sin. We're the only ones who have, who have that answer. And so as Jeremiah has wept for Jerusalem, he says, This I recall to mind. He's not wallowing in his emotion. He says, therefore, because of what I recall to mind, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. See, he reminds himself uh, of the promises of God, of his inheritance, and that he is owned by God. The Lord is my portion. And the conclusion, I hope, I have confident expectation in him. 
The Lord is good to those who wait for him and to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should hope and wait quietly. I think that has something to do with being in a 150-mile-long traffic jam, right? got to wait. Houston can't even touch that. You know, the other day I was in a traffic jam, and I thought, why are you so relaxed? Oh, you've been in worse traffic jams for day, a couple of days, okay? So we can wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So we're going to have a sermon in stereo this morning because I am going to talk, and then Jim is going to talk And the focal point that we want to remind you of is our responsibility to trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. See, there were a lot of people who said that that Jim should have come out a long time ago. There were many missionary organizations that pulled their people a couple of months ago. But we're not to rely on human viewpoint as pastors. It's interesting. I talked to seven or eight pastors, and with only one exception, uh, I, I think maybe two, it was, you need to do what God called you to do. Go. And the others were, were a little wobbly, like, uh, I wouldn't go. My response to that was, that's not your mission. You have children. You have other obligations, but this is where God wants me. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall make your path straight, direct your paths. And that's what we're focusing on, how God made our path straight. We didn't know where the path was going to end, but it's just remarkable. Hebrews 4.2 tells us that the Exodus generation did not mix faith with the promises of God, and that's why they were a failure. But 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us we walk by faith and not by sight. It's not based on human reason. And often we would add up everything. We'd say, this is probably the safe course. Did God call us to safety? Did God call us to security? God called us to glorify him in whatever we do, and he will take care of us. So before we get into the details, Jim is going to come up and give us the backstory. Now, since we did this Sunday, I have noticed, I have read numerous articles. You have too. Have you read anybody who said anything that you said Sunday morning? No. No. The perspective of the media cannot be trusted. When we were over there, they would say a lot of things, but like Satan's lie, it was full of truth. So people read the truth and think they can believe the rest of it. There were things that obviously we were not accurate in our thinking that Putin would not attack to the degree that he did. But that doesn't negate anything. We had a mission, and our decision was not based. Decisions were not based on what we thought Putin would do or not do. But we, when I was over there in the first two weeks, people would email me things and say they're saying this or saying that. And uh, it was partially true and partially not. It's still partially true and partially not because they have a very narrow perspective. So Jim's going to give us um, the back backdrop here. Always we need. 
And it's good to know what the history is, because if you don't get that, then you really don't understand what, what's going on. And uh, I know that there are people who were critical of us for staying, critical of Robbie for uh, even making the trip to Ukraine. Uh, but what happened was not sudden. Now, we could go back to 1991. I'm not going back that far. Uh, that's when the Soviet Union broke up. But in the year 2004, let's go back there, there was a great event that took place in Ukraine. They were having a presidential election. There were two men running for president. One was very pro-West, pro-American, and there was one who was very pro-Russian. And they, they, they were having this uh, election, and you will recall that the pro-West candidate was poisoned, almost died. He had been movie star handsome, but after that poison, his face was so disfigured. You remember that? Well, they had this election. He didn't die. The Lord spared him. And they had this election, and it was marred by massive fraud. Now, you don't know anything about that here, <laughs> But because of the massive fraud in that election, people just poured out into the streets and they protested that and said, we want a new election. You remember they called that the Orange Revolution. And ultimately they had a new election and the pro-West candidate was elected. That's good. And so he was president and then... Uh, this takes us down to the next presidential election. Five years later, in 2010, the pro-Russian candidate was elected as president. Now, he had promised as part of his campaign that he would sign a treaty with the European Union that would open up trade routes for free trade with Ukraine and Western Europe and that there would be uh, then free travel between Ukraine and the European countries, and, and this would be very good for Ukraine. And he had promised to do that, but on the night that he was to sign that treaty, he went to Russia. He refused to sign the treaty with Europe. Instead, he signed a pact with Russia that drew Ukraine closer to Russia. This man, of course, is a good buddy of Vladimir Putin. Well, when he reneged on his promise to the Ukrainian people, they began to protest. And they came by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands. And they came to Kiev. They came to the city. They were in the city center. Massive, massive demonstration. Now, they were peaceful. But uh, they had a lot of people out there, and this went on for weeks. And the president, the pro-Russian president, he, he did a number of things to try to disperse the crowd. He sent ruffians, thugs, out into the crowd and uh, tried to start fights and, and different things so that he could send in the goon squad to beat people up and arrest them. But uh, that didn't work. 
And then he had snipers up on the tops of the tall buildings around the city center. They murdered a hundred people. Snipers did. Indiscriminately. Didn't make any difference who it was. There was no rhyme to reason. They just shot these people. Thinking if we do that, the people are going to be frightened. They're going to go home. Wrong again. I love these Ukrainian people. More of them came. You're not going to scare us off. And so they are demanding now the resignation of this president. And he said, okay, uh, well, I'll, I'll finish out my term. I'll resign in a few months. And people said, no, we want you out now. And so he uh, packed his suitcases with billions of dollars, and he fled to Russia. And then the, the Ukrainians uh, installed an interim government. And they, they said, we, we want to restore our constitution to what it was before this previous guy made a lot of changes to it that gave him power. And uh, then when they installed this interim government, the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, declared this government to be illegal. He said, that's the result of a coup. It's an illegal government. They have no right to be there. And then very shortly, a matter of days, they took the Crimean Peninsula. A matter of days, they moved into eastern Ukraine. They took control of several cities there in eastern Ukraine. And this began a conflict. Now, this is the year 2014. It began a conflict that continued up until 2022, our current year. And something that is not much reported in American media is that over the past eight years, there have been more than 40,000 casualties in that conflict. You didn't hear about that, did you? More than 14,000 Ukrainian people died at the hands of these Russians or Russian separatist, Russian-backed thugs who have taken control of certain cities in the east and where they set up their own, uh, what do they call that city up there in Port? What, Chop or something like that, the city of, <laughs> uh, city of love. What did you have here last year, okay? Well, that's what they, they've done over there in the east. Okay, so here on the map, the small circle in the center, that's uh, Kiev. And over in the, the circle on the right, that is the Donbass region, uh, the Donetsk River basin over there, and uh, the large cities that are there. This is the industrial heart of Ukraine. This is where they have mining uh, and heavy industry. And so the Russians took that uh, place that's in, uh, in the circle there, and then the Crimean Peninsula is like a little uvula hanging down in the Black Sea. And uh, so the Russians controlled that. Now, this conflict has been going on for eight years. But it hasn't affected uh, Kiev. It hasn't uh, affected the western part of the country at all, except that more than a million and a half people fled from eastern Ukraine. 
Now, the propaganda is these people are Russians, and these people want to be Russians, and they don't want to be Ukrainians, and, and so they have this Russian heritage, and so Putin is saying we, we need to liberate our people. Well, he came in, they took over the, the cities there in the east, and a million and a half people fled that area, but they didn't go east. They didn't go to Russia. <laughs> they don't want to be Russians. They came to Kiev by the tens of thousands. They, they went to western Ukraine, and those who could went to uh, countries in Europe. And they fled looking for jobs, looking for places to live. And so this conflict has been going on for uh, so many years, so it's not something new. And uh, we, we would hear uh, almost every day about something that happened there in the east with uh, uh, some artillery fire, some uh, skirmishes between small groups. And so what was happening was not new. Yes, they amassed troops along the border there in Ukraine, the troops amassed uh, in the north uh, in Belarus and uh, buildup of troops in the Crimea. But this had been going on for a long time. And we were not fearful. The people in Kiev were not fearful. I mean, it was just go on with normal life. Now, the people in those cities over in the east, of course, they're suffering uh, in a number of different ways. But uh, we, we had no fear. Kiev is about 500 miles from the border, so it's not close. And we thought, okay, if, if he's going to invade from the uh, eastern side of Ukraine, it, it would take him quite a few days to travel from, let's say, Kharkiv to Kiev. And so we didn't expect anything to happen in Kiev immediately. So... Uh, we didn't really think there would be an invasion. And the people in Ukraine didn't expect any such thing. And the president of Ukraine didn't expect that this would happen either. And with this in mind, Robbie decided that it was safe to make his annual trek to Kiev to teach at the Bible college. So this wasn't just some foolhardy decision. You throw caution to the wind. We're going to walk into the face of danger and... Uh, you know, not some uh, you know, ridiculous attitude of uh, I, I can do anything and God's going to protect me. You don't throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and expect the angels to bury you up in their hands. That, that wasn't uh, that kind of attitude at all. Uh, is there a possibility of danger? Of course. You got on the freeway today, did you not? I mean... People get killed on the freeways. Okay? Any of you been to Chicago recently? I mean, would it be foolish for you to go to Chicago considering they kill a couple dozen people every week? No. You understand? There's always danger. But that doesn't mean that if you go someplace that uh, it's necessarily a foolish decision. You... you you look at the circumstances, you use your best judgment, you make a decision. So, yes, there's a possibility of danger, but um, you don't make your decisions on the basis of possibilities. Well, it might possibly happen. If you did that, nothing would get done. 
I mean, I've read about people who have broken into churches and opened fire with automatic weapons. And yet you're here. Is that foolish for you to be here today? I mean, some madman could walk in the back and open fire. Is that a reality? Yes. But yet you're here. Is that a stupid decision? I don't think so. So we evaluate the situation. We don't intentionally put ourselves in danger. We consider the circumstances. We make decisions. And as Christians, really, we don't make decisions, or at least we shouldn't, in the same way that the world does. We take into account service for the Lord. And often we make decisions for the glory of the Lord, even though others might think that uh, it's foolish. I mean, Brett's back here. He lived in the jungles in Venezuela for years. That's stupid, Brett. Why would you do that? That's, that's dangerous. And he knew it was dangerous, but he went to serve the Lord. So I think that uh, Robbie's decision to come to Ukraine was not foolish. It was his desire to teach the Word of God, to help prepare men for ministry, a decision to serve God. And so he put his life in God's hands, and uh, that's what we always have to do. So he, he bought his ticket. He came to Ukraine. Now, as it turned out... <laughs> God is working out things that we don't know about. And I know he does this every day for us, and we have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes to keep us alive and to uh, make it possible for us to uh, serve him. But uh, God was doing some, some incredible things that we're able to piece together now as we look back on it. And... Uh, God was doing things to get me and Phyllis out of Ukraine. And so we, we want to tell you some of the things that God was doing so that you can see the grace of God and so that you can see the mercy of God and so that we can praise God for his mercy and his wonderful works to the children of men. Now, typically, Robbie would come to Kiev in January, has for years, but not this year. He postponed it until February. As it turned out, this was providential. This is God working behind the scenes to bring Robbie to Ukraine at exactly the right time. And then of all things, once Robbie got there, God wouldn't let him go home. <laughs> he closed the door. Robbie couldn't get out of Ukraine. And ultimately, this was God providing the means so that we could all get out safely. Robbie got to uh, Ukraine on the 10th of February. On the 12th of February, we got a notice. KLM has canceled all flights into and out of Ukraine. Of course, Robbie had a ticket on KLM. So now they're not flying. Well, what's he going to do? Well, he... Uh, he uh, got on the telephone, he got on his computer, he starts uh, madly trying to find uh, another way to, uh, to get out of Ukraine. So he looking for another airline where he could get a ticket. And so uh, the next day he was able to reschedule on a different airline. And he determined, well, I'm going to leave a little bit earlier than I had planned to. I'm going to leave a week earlier. And so now he's got a, a ticket 
to get out on the 18th of February. You know all of the nonsense about COVID tests and everything. And so Robbie went and got his COVID test. He's supposed to fly on the 17th, on the 18th. On the 17th, he tested positive for COVID-19. There's no airline that's going to put him on an airplane, so that means he can't leave. (laughs) So on the 20th of February, he rescheduled to depart on the 25th, which was his original departure date. So he said, but he got a ticket. Okay, I'm going to reschedule, so I'm going to be over this COVID uh, in a few days, and I'll get a negative test, and I'll be able to fly. Now, God could have intervened. He could have kept the airlines running. He could have kept Robbie from getting COVID. But he didn't do that. You know, you get into a situation, and you think God could have stopped that. But he didn't. And that ought to tell you God has a purpose for you in that situation. And the only question you have to answer is, what does God want me to do in this situation? How can I glorify the Lord in these circumstances? That's the only question we have to answer. If you can answer that, life's pretty simple. Okay, here I am. How can I glorify God now? So there were things that were beyond our control. Robbie couldn't control the airlines or his COVID. It's out of our hands. And that's the time to relax. Knowing that God is the sovereign, he could have changed things. God knew exactly what he was doing. Now, Phyllis and I live in a small village about 20 miles from the city center, about a half-hour drive from the college. And on the 24th of February, about 4.30 in the morning, I was awakened by a noise that rattled the windows. Okay, what is that? Boom. Okay, I didn't think anything of it. Closed my eyes to go back to sleep. A few minutes later, there was another explosion. (laughs) And then Oleg, the pastor of our church, director of the Bible college, he lives on the second story of our house and he came down said we have a situation (laughs) and uh, the Russians were launching missiles that were exploding at the airport so we turned on the news and uh, we were shocked at what we saw Robbie began calling and uh, he said, we've got to get out of here, and uh, I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay and, and minister to the people. Phyllis uh, wanted to leave with Robbie, and uh, so she began packing. Now, God had already worked out all the details. Everything was worked out. Amazing how it all worked out. So, Robbie, why don't you tell us what happened? Well, on that that particular morning, which was uh, February the 24th, I had gone to bed thinking, okay, I've got about 29 hours, and then my flight's out of here. 
And so I went to sleep and uh, thinking about the next day that I'm going to get up in the morning. I've got to teach about uh, four hours for the students for the end of the semester and then give them their final. And then I'll make a couple of errands and I'll uh, come back, pack up, and be ready to go to the airport on Friday morning. Well, as I said earlier, I woke up at about 4.30 and had to take care of some things and came back to bed and heard uh, a noise that was different, that wasn't quite like a backfire or gunshot, and uh, but I didn't hear anything right after it. So I almost got back to sleep, and all of a sudden I heard it again. Well, now it got my attention. I got up and I looked out the window to see if there was any activity outside. It was still dark. It was uh, by this time. It was about five or five o'clock or or a little after. And I thought, well. And I picked up my phone, and and it was just blowing up. Uh, People were sending me. They would take a video of a Fox News report and email that to me. And um, other things, of course, I got a Fox News app. I can look at that same story, and which is what I started doing. But, you know, these explosions were random. They were about, over a period of two hours, I think there were 10 or 12. And uh, it was obvious from what I was reading in the news that we we were under attack, that the airport was under attack. And that, again, is a providential thing because, as Jim said, I got tested positive for COVID the Thursday before. I couldn't fly out that Friday. I rescheduled for this the 25th. But I thought, I can reschedule that if I can test negative. So I tested on Saturday. I tested, and it was positive. I tested on Monday, and it was just barely positive. I mean, there was just a shadow on what, on a, this like litmus paper that should have been just white. And there was just a shadow, a faint, faint shadow. She said, if you come back in 48 hours, you'll be clear. I said, wow, well, now I can't go out Wednesday morning. Maybe I'll get out Thursday morning. So I got on the Turkish Air website and that flight was booked solid. So I couldn't go out Thursday morning, which is a good thing because at the time I would have been arriving at the airport, missiles were coming in at that same time. So it just got God's uh, providential care. But throughout this time, I was thinking through Psalm 23. Psalm 23, where in verse 4, The psalmist writes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You're in a situation that could cost you your life. You're threatened. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a hurricane in Houston. Maybe it's uh, the Russian artillery in Ukraine. It could be any number of things. But God takes care of us. As the psalmist writes, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's it. For thou art with me. That's my security. You know, you're not doing something foolish, and you're not throwing yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, as as Jim said, but God is with us. He has a plan and purpose for my life. I pray to God. I, I am a firm believer that we should think about how we are structuring our petitions to God, not just throw out wish lists like he's Santa Claus. And I said, Lord, I know that in the course of my life, you have a plan and a purpose for my life. When my mother was pregnant with me at seven months, two months before my due date, she contracted three kinds of polio, encephalitis, hepatitis, kidney infection, a bladder infection, and she was in an iron lung because she could not breathe on her own. She went into labor two months early, 
And I was born a nice, healthy, six-and-a-half-pound baby boy at seven months. God provided for me my birth, and I have believed ever since I could understand that story that God had a plan and a purpose for me because that was in 1952. Now you all know how old I am. In 1952, you know, you... you, you Babies that were two months early did, in those conditions did not necessarily survive. So I have always had a sense that God had a plan and purpose for me. And I said, Lord, you provided for my birth. You've done this in my life and this in my life and this in my life. I do not believe that this is the end. And I just pray that I can trust you and relax and rest that having been tested positive when I was trying to get out last week, confirmed that I'm here. I've got a purpose. I don't know what that is, but I just have to uh, glorify you. Uh, Psalm 46.1 says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 9.9 says the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed a refuge in times of trouble. We need to know these promises. We need to internalize them, and we need to to use them. So what happened was, when I heard these things, I said, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but I better make sure I'm fully packed and ready to go. So I packed all my bags, got everything ready to go. I was communicating with Jim, and I'm on the eighth floor. So I'm facing south, which is the direction of the airport, and I'm on high. I'm, there aren't any buildings between me and the airport, so that's why I was hearing the, these noises and the explosions so clearly. But I thought, the college is 600 yards away, and it's on the first floor. That's a better place to be. So I uh, packed up just my carry-on and my backpack, and I texted Nina, who lives over there at the college. I said, I'm on my way there. And I'll be there in a few minutes, so I'll be ready to open the door. She said, give me a half hour. I'm just getting into the shower. So I did that, and then I went over there. And then we went to the grocery store. There were a lot of people. uh, at The one near her, there were not that many people, and we got some things there. When I went home, I thought, well, let me just – maybe I'll go over to the ATM and get a little more cash out. And I went over there, and the line was – as long as from here to the back wall over there, and I figured by the time they got halfway through that line, there wouldn't be anything left, so I just went back. And I sat there for a little while, and I thought, well, I'm just going to take my other suitcase, the the larger check bag. I'm going to take that back, and just in case something happens, then it's right there. They don't have to come over here and get it, and they can mail it to me or ship it to me in three or four months or six months or whenever. And so I did that, and just as I got there, Nina said, Jim just texted, and Vova and Natalie are on their way. Natalie is the school secretary, and they live out in the village where Jim lives. And so they came in to get me, and they picked me up, put everything in the back of the, the, their, their car, and we took off on what is arguably the most dangerous part of the entire episode. Vova drives like an Indianapolis race car driver, and it doesn't matter how many cars are in front of him and stopped. And so we drove about 10 miles to the east of of, uh, Kiev to Brovary, and then there you turn off into like a two-lane, no-shoulder country uh, country road. And he was passing 20, 25 cars at a time. 
And so, and weaving in and out of traffic the whole way. So eventually we got there, and I'm just I'm I'm claiming more promises by the second. <laughs> so we got to Jim's house, and that was just a, an island of peace in the midst of chaos. And so we we were relaxed. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and just then I got a text on my phone. And it was from Senator Jason Rapert, who's a state senator in Arkansas. And Jason and I have been friends ever since we went on an APAC uh, trip, to APAC-sponsored trip for their, their, their nonprofit educational organization, AIEF, the American Israel Education Foundation. And we had been seated together on the way over and got to be friends. He's very conservative, solid believer of the charismatic Assembly of God stripe. And he was texting me. He said, are you okay? What's going on? He said, I've got Senator Tom Cotton's office on the, uh, on the phone, and we're going to patch them in and have a conversation. I thought, wow, this is interesting. And so we had our conversation, and they said, we've got Project uh, Dynamo hooked up here, and they are ready to uh, extract you. And so you need to talk to him. This guy's going to contact you, but first you need to download Signal, which is a more secure communication app. I have that. I know a number of you have that. I had never used it, but I had it on my phone, it turned out. So I was ready, and we got on with a guy who wishes to remain anonymous. And we went through a lot of different things and scenarios, and he said, here's what, and then he said, someone will call you back later. So these conversations actually took place over the next three or four hours, but it was clear that they were going to extract us. And they made it very clear, Jason and Tom Cotton's office, there's a lady in Tom Cotton's office that checked on me every hour, hour and a half for the next 48 hours. That means through her sleeping time, she was checking on me. John Hintz, all around the clock for 48 hours, was checking on me. Jason was checking on me. And I found out that there were, there's a family in this congregation that had relatives that had been missionaries in Ukraine. They had, without our knowledge, contacted them, and there was one member of that, uh, uh, as, I as I've been told and understand it, a single woman who said, if that dynamo thing doesn't work out, I'll go in there and I will bring them out no matter what. And then they had another friend that was an extractor, and it turns out that he knows the Dynamo guys, got in touch with them. He was a backup to the backup, and he, they shared info with him on, uh, on a, a tracking app using Google Map, and he was tracking me the whole way. So we had all kinds of things going on in God's providential prayer. I didn't know God had backup plans and backup plans to his backup plans. <laughs> Maybe that's in Third Esdras. I don't know, but <laughs> any, anyhow. So what happened was about eleven o'clock. The plan was that we were going to. Uh, oh, excuse me. No, we didn't know it, what the plan was. He just said, "We'll let you know." So I went to sleep. Twelve o'clock, the phone rang. I mean, I was dead asleep, and I'm scrambling. I'm in strange quarters and sleeping in Jim's office, and I finally found the phone. And he said, "Okay, here's the plan." that the extractor will pick you up in the vicinity of the university uh, metro station uh, in the center of Kiev at, seven, at, eight, at 8 in the morning. 
And I thought, well, Jim and Phyllis are already asleep. I guess I'm just going to have to go roust them at 5.30. So I reset my alarm and everything, looking forward to that. Four o'clock, I had to once again get up and, and go to the little boy's room and come back. And I looked at a text, and they said, that, that plan has been scratched. Go ahead and sleep a little later, and we'll get back to you with the new plan. Okay. What happened was the guy, we were the second group to come out. The guy they had hired to drive the bus for the first group got to the border and said, you know, I don't want to go back to Ukraine. So he texted him and said, I'm taking the group and the bus and everything, and we're going into Romania. So they had to hire a new bus driver and find a bus. But the the first guy only had a van, so now they had a 23-passenger Mercedes bus. Mercedes doesn't mean it was luxurious. It just the engine worked better. We went 14 hours on on one tank of gas. So I got up about 6.45, and Phyllis fixed breakfast, and we sat around, and we got all packed, ready to load it into the car and go, and we... He kept texting me saying, can you get to the center of town and just scope it out to see if there's any suspicious activity? I said, it's 25 miles away, and I don't know what's between here and there. We're in a secure area in a country rural village, and I don't know what we're going to run into. He kept three times he asked me, three times I said, we talked about it. We're not comfortable with that plan. Then about 10 o'clock... We were already loading the car, just ready to, just in case, and he texted me and said, get out now, Russians are east of you, start moving moving in towards town, and we will text you the pickup location in, in a little bit. So we put our bags in the car, we walked around, and we were opening the doors, I think Phyllis was already in the car, and you were just getting in, and I was just getting in, and it boom! And then another, Boom! And this was probably some artillery within three miles or so. And basically that was a confirmation that, yes, indeed, you need to start moving west. <laughs> and so Oleg, our driver, has his phone set up here, and he's hearing things, and he's creating calls from people, checking routes, and who's seeing what or what not. And so we weaving in and out, side roads, back roads, dirt roads. And we come <coughs> out, and there's a Ukrainian artillery battery uh, uh, about a hundred yards from us, and there's smoke curling out of their uh, their their artillery pieces. And so, we had been between the lines, and then we moved in, and we got across into the center of town. It was all quiet, peaceful. And while we we're there, they texted us a map with our location of where we were going to meet, which was a half a mile from the teachers' college. And when we got there and got on the bus, I could look out the window and see see the window of the apartment. When we, when we did get there, we were an hour early, and there was an air raid siren, so we took shelter in the closest building, which happens to be the building where the church meets. And then we got on, and there were some others there. And there's a grace lesson here. There was a young man on the bus. There were two young men, actually, techies, n- no common sense, neither of whom had probably ever <laughs> even understood what a Boy Scout was supposed to be. No water. Uh, one guy did have do- enough dollars to pay his 250 but the other guy said, all I've got is Grievna. He said, will you take a credit card? The driver just looked at him. You know, he said, well, I've, I've got Bitcoin. I can transfer it into your account. <laughs> he had no water, no food, nothing. And so I leaned back to Jim. I said, we better pay this guy's way. And so we did. 
And that was his lesson. This kid learned about grace the whole trip because we took him with us once we did uh, once we did get out. Okay, so that's taking it through there, and Jim's going to come up and uh, take us uh, a little further along along the trail here. Okay. So we woke up. Huh? We'll get back. When we need a map, we'll get there. (laughs) So we woke up in the morning. It was my desire, my intention to stay, to to minister to people there. Uh, But then I I recognized that... uh, there's the possibility that I would be separated from my wife for perhaps a long period of time. I didn't want that. And I also recognized that I would be more of a burden to the people there than I would be a help, that they're going to be focused on taking care of me instead of taking care of what they need to do for their own families and in the situation there. And so I made the decision Actually, it was in the morning. Phyllis and Robbie are getting ready to leave. I made the decision I probably should go with them. And so uh, I took about five minutes and uh, threw a couple of things in a little carry-on suitcase and uh, got in the car, and and we left. And uh, we went uh, went into the city, and uh, there we finally met up with the people who were going to transport us to the border. So, promises. Um, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In Him I will trust. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. You shall not be afraid of the arrow or the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes will you look and see the reward of the wicked because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread on the lion and the cobra and the young lion and the serpent you shall trample under feet. Because he has set his love on me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and deliver him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's my psalm of deliverance, strength. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? (laughs) As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have exceedingly great and precious promises, and this is what you need in time of trouble. Not panaceas, Not cute little sayings on the wall. You need the Word of God in your soul. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. For in the time of trouble, he will hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he will hide me. He will set me high on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praise to the Lord. We have a God whose character is such that he knows what he's doing. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And out of that omniscience, he has a perfect plan. And our God is omnipotent. And because he is omnipotent, he's able to do what he plans. We need to praise the Lord for who he is. We give thanks for what he has done for us. I want to encourage you. You're going to face troubles. It's coming. Maybe slight, maybe severe. What will sustain you? God has given us what we need to face any situation in right. Robbie. Now, the last time I was up, I told you what was happening on our side, but what God was doing on the other side was also interesting over here because my wife woke up and she had a name in her head. Now, if you read through Nehemiah again and again, Nehemiah says, the Lord puts this in my heart. The Lord put this on my mind. God just gave her this thought. Uh, You know, that's not mystical. That's not, you know, some kind of weird thing. It's just the Lord put that name there. And the name there was a woman that we know and we've been I've been on two trips to Israel with very pro Israel. She and her husband have a charismatic health and wealth prosperity gospel church here in town. But at this point, nobody's saying, let me see your doctrinal statement before I can ask you to pray for me. Okay, so. Pam thought about her, and my wife likes to, she's behind the scenes, she doesn't want to be noticed much, but she's a little prayer warrior, and she has several groups of women that uh, engage in prayer, a lot like Charlie's wife, Carol. 
And so she contacted, just texted this, this woman, and that woman is very pro-Israel and very in touch, and she also was on that trip to Israel when I met uh, Rafael Cruz, you know, that's Ted's daddy, and Jason Rapert. So she contacted the head of that, uh, the uh, APAC Christian Outreach Group, and Sabrina immediately contacted uh, all of those who were in that group and were politically connected. That's how Jason found out. And um, and so and, and 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 the you know I was also told by Becky that 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 Raphael was texting her every day about are they out yet? How's Robbie doing? What's going on? And um, and then as we were coming through on our trip here, see this is the map Dan wanted. <laughs> we came south out of Ukraine to Bella. Belitserka, which really came under attack a lot there. It's got a large Jewish community. It came under a lot of attack last week. And then we went west, uh, uh, weaving in and out and having to deal with a lot of traffic, and we'd take a back road and cut over to another highway and hit more traffic. And so as we were making our way this way, Greg, who's back on the back row there, uh, Greg texted me and said, are you guys going out through Poland? And I said, no, we're going out through Romania. He said, hold on. Uh, I know I used to do some short-term mission work in Romania. I know a lot of pastors. Let me find out if anybody's near that border crossing. And this, he texted me back 10 or 20 minutes later, and he said, hey, there's this guy named Alex who's, who I've known since he was 17 years old and his wife long before they were, you know, when they were teenagers. And um, he lives 20 minutes from the border. You think that just ha- was happenstance? This is God's providential care. Now, what's interesting is that every person that was involved in our extraction, I came to know through my pro-Israel involvement in different groups. There were the APAC people, the Christians who were involved in APAC, and then there was Greg, uh, Tommy, and Pam, and I uh, went to Israel in 2016 to go to a, a, a Christian leadership study of the Holocaust, and that's where we met Greg. And so God's pulling these three. That uh, APAC trip that I went to Israel was 2012. God is was setting things up that far back 10 years ago. And he pulls these things together. And everybody that was involved in getting us out was a contact through uh, through our pro-Israel activity. That's Genesis 12.3. Those who bless Israel... God will bless. And that, that was just, just remarkable. So this is our route. We're headed down here to Chernitsi. We left, we left Kiev at 2.15 on Friday afternoon, and we got to the border crossing at 11.45 Saturday night. Normally, that's a six-hour, and you're across the border. So we had some adventures. The bus was overheating, and there was this little stand where people could. Uh, actually, there were several little restaurants there, and they they all were cook, cooking shish kebab, shashlik, and grilling meats. And my wife, who has had suffered terribly, uh, grew up in Mexico City, had horrible uh, food poisoning several times, has drilled into me that you don't eat street food. Don't eat food off the street. One time I didn't listen to her. We were in Mexico, and I got terribly sick. We're not going to do that again. So we didn't eat. Later, when we're stopped waiting, crossing the border, there were three of these guys. Where I said, how's that, how's that meat? How'd that sit on you? Oh, hadn't been good. Okay, so 
thank God for my wife. So we were exploring the countryside in Kiev, and I got this map from our handler with uh, Project Dynamo, and the areas in light green up here and down here are where there was military activity with the Russians. And so we, at that time, we were way over here, so I sent this out to a lot of people, and they were able to just breathe a sigh of relief that we weren't heading into, uh, into trouble. So we arrived at the border. Jim's going to talk, come up and talk about that and getting across the border. But one other thing is that I had also been contacted a lot by a man who was helpful in founding this church. Now he lives in Switzerland, and uh, he and his wife had uh, were, were flying from there to Bucharest where they were going to rent a car uh, van and drive up to the border, a six-hour drive where they were going to pick us up. And uh, I put them in contact with Alex. That uh, And so they got there early. We were just, it was later and later and later, took longer and longer to get across the border. And so Alex put those folks up overnight. And so you just see the body of Christ at work. We uh, were getting close to the border. Traffic was getting heavier and heavier, and uh, when we finally started getting close to the border, th- there was uh, a backup of vehicles, four lanes, cars, 18-wheelers, and they were one right close to the other. You couldn't walk between the vehicles. They were that, that tight. And this line of vehicles from the border was about five miles long. And the the driver of our bus, he, he got clear over in the left lane because there was one lane left open for people that were going in the other direction. Not too many people were headed in into Ukraine. Uh, and so he got over into that lane, and uh, he got us as close as he could to the border, and then finally he stopped and said, get out, this is the end of the line. And and we were about a mile and a half from the border. And so we got out, uh, we had our suitcases, and we had to walk um, to to the border crossing. A mile and a half. Mile and a half, yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's night, okay, and it's cold. I mean, it's 32. I, I'm going to interrupt him because... At the front of our group, there were three people. There was Phyllis and Jim, who just turned 78, and me. I kept having to stop and pull my pants up and fix my backpack. Then I had to catch up with them. But everybody else, everybody else, yeah, I'm 69. Everybody else, the young people, were 100, 150 yards behind us, huffing and puffing and trying to catch up. <laughs> Old people rule. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to uh, up to the border, and it was just a sea of people. And it was chaos. There were no lines. There was no sign. There was no one in charge telling us where to go. I mean, this was the scene right there. And, okay, so then someone would say, well, you should be over here. Someone else said, oh, you should be over there. And, and it was just uh, all of these people 
and great confusion. And uh, Robbie got to chatting with uh, this young African woman. She was a student. And Robbie said, what do you know? And so she said, well, we've got to get all of these. There are a large group of Indians there, Indian students, and they, they, they needed to get across first. They had buses waiting for them on the other side. And she said, and then after these Indians go, then we can go, all of these Africans. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a long, long night. And then there were a lot of other people there, Ukrainians, uh, waiting to get across. And so we stood out there for three hours, and uh, it was we were getting very cold. No toilets, uh, you know, no food, just people milling about. And finally I started talking to this one man, and he said, go get over there. There is a line over there. Go, go get that. I said, that's for women and children, and I don't qualify for either. And he, he said, it's okay. Go get in that line. So we went and got in that line, Phyllis and Robbie and I, and uh, I think there were three or four others from our group, and we all got in that line. And the, the gate that's there, uh, tall metal gate, about 12 feet high, and we got fairly close to this gate because we're in this line with the women and children. And finally the guard came and he opened the gate. He said, 45 people can come, come in. And I thought, we're not going to make it. We've got a lot of people in front of us. And they started letting people through. And we got up there, and I was afraid he was going to close that gate. But he didn't. We got through, and then clang, they closed that gate. <laughs> oh, isn't God good? <laughs> so we got through, uh, and they put us on a, on a bus, small bus, uh, and we sat in that bus for an hour, and then we finally got up to the Ukrainian checkpoint where they took up all of our passports, took them into a building, and an hour later they came back out. We had a stamp, and then the bus moved up, and we got to the Romanian checkpoint. Again, we sat in the bus uh, until they checked our documents, and then um, after we got our um, passports back, then uh, the bus took us outside, and now we're free. Now we're in Romania. And uh, it's about 6.30 in the morning uh, by this time, and we finally emerged, and we were met by uh, a friend, uh, the one that Robbie mentioned, who had uh, flown in from Switzerland, rented a van, drove from Bucharest, about six hours over to the border. And then he took us south to this pastor's house that Greg Allen had known. And it was, a, it was amazing. We got to this, this house, and these people, they're Christian Romanians. Uh, we don't speak their language at all. But they welcomed us like we were long-lost family. They just took us into their house they just loved us. They, we had this fabulous Romanian breakfast. And then we went on our way. It's just God's provision for us. Uh, every step along the way, it was just uh, marvelous. And then uh, this man drove us to, to Bucharest. 
And this kid that Robbie was talking about that was totally unprepared for almost anything, he came with us, and he went down to this house with us. And he, he, he's just amazed. His eyes are large in amazement, as he said. I've never seen anything like this. These people don't know you. And they bring you into their house, and they feed you, and, and, and they just love you like you've, they've known you forever. He said, I don't understand this. He said, this is what we call grace. And, uh, you know, and he got a ride to Bucharest. He said, I don't understand this. We took him to the airport. He said, I don't, I don't, I've never seen anything like this. I said, well, let me, let me define grace for you. you know, it's God providing something you don't deserve, something you don't work for, something you haven't paid for. That's God's plan. So you might pray for this young man that uh, what he witnessed in grace is going to have an impact in his life and he'll put faith in Jesus for salvation and uh, he's going to want to learn about grace. So God was with us step by step. Uh, okay, that's another picture at the, at the border crossing. Now, God blessed us. We were only at the border for... I don't know, a little over six hours. Some of our people have been at the border for 36 hours. Uh, dreadful. Uh, so this is, this is Alex. This is this Romanian young man. Uh, he, he was there at the border to meet us, and then he took us down to this, this house where they took us in and, and fed us this wonderful breakfast. Uh, Alex is uh, he's just a committed Christian. But he has... The love of Jesus. Now, he's not from our theological perspective. But you know, it doesn't matter. We're all in the same family. It's the family of God. We're fellow members. He's a brother in Christ. And what we saw was just an outpouring of Christian love. And we are so grateful to God for all of those along the way that God provided. He opened doors and he put us just in the right place. So it was a marvelous display of the grace of God. And it was our privilege to be recipients of that grace. And so now, what are you going to do with it? We're going to declare the glory of God. It is God who did this work. It's got nothing to do with us. This is all a matter of God's grace, God's mercy. And so we proclaim the name of the Lord. Jim wasn't here last night, but this is Alex, who we talked about last night, who has, he and uh, uh, various uh, people, his neighbors, those in his church, are going to the border many times during the day, picking people up, taking them places, providing for them. And I know there was a, a good offering last night. We put uh, offering plates down here. We've got to still figure out how to Send that to him. He gave us uh, instructions this morning, but uh, we haven't had time to implement that. Uh, but if anybody else wants to, I've already had two or three text messages this morning from people who aren't here who are saying they want to contribute uh, uh, money uh, for him. And just as we wrap up here, as we look at Psalm 116 again, what we learn in, and uh, this is very brief, is that 
what what psalmist says is because God delivered us, we see the reality of his power and the protection uh, of God. And so that should cause us, motivate us to be strengthened in our desire to know him and to know his word and to walk closely with, with the Lord. Uh, he says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In verses 10 and 11, he recognizes the Lord alone uh, is worthy of our trust. All men are sinners. You can't ultimately trust them to deliver you, but God will be the one to deliver you. And third, that in verses 12 to 19, he's basically saying we cannot repay God for our, our deliverance, but we must acknowledge him before all uh, that he is the one who delivered us so that God will be glorified. As we close, I'd like for us to stand together and sing Amazing Grace. We'll sing four verses. We'll cut out the, there are five in there. We won't sing the third. I think it's the fourth verse that kept going through my mind as we were traveling. Grace has brought me here thus far, and grace will lead me home. What? 202, hymn number 202 in the, in the hymnal.
and you would bring about their destruction. But if not, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in all that happens. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're running a little late, so we'll be back about uh, about 10.20 or so for our next session. So, <laughs> so.